Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. Our next sermon series is going to be on 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend a number of months here. I want to just kind of give an opening to it and kind of lay the foundation for why we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. So to start, the city of Corinth, it was on the sea. It uh, connected, kind of served as this connecting point between two little parts of Greece. Um, and it was super easy. It had a port on the west, port on the port on the east, and then they could use this little... Uh, aqueduct to get through super easy so then it became this like big metropolitan big metropolitan city there were like multiple temples to roman and greek gods and really it was an economic powerhouse that was located just west of athens and so this is a diverse city and inside of this diverse city is a diverse church and so why are we going through this now our church is changing we are continuing to grow and we are growing younger at a time when the vast majority of churches in America are getting older. We have young people and older people, different generations with different ideas on how the church should act and be. We have this older congregation that has a historic view on ecclesiology. That's the understanding of the church. And their ecclesiology is largely grounded in their particular tradition. But then we also have a younger congregation who are interpreting and living their faith in new and fresh ways. And many of them grew up in a church, but they didn't find meaning in the traditions. But what they do find meaning in is in Jesus Christ. And these two people groups, they don't always agree, even though we are often happy to see each other. And Paul, the apostle now, has, written a has received a letter from Corinth. And they're telling him that things are not going well in this city, in this church, because of the diversity of values that are happening there. So now Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, as a response back to the church that he had planted years ago. See, Paul was in Corinth in about the year 50 AD. And 1 Corinthians is written probably about four years later, four or five years later in 54, 55 AD. And see, there were at least four letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. He says in chapter 5, verse 9, in my letter, that means that 1 Corinthians is the second letter. <coughs> Excuse me. Then there was another letter that was lost between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So what that means, 1 Corinthians is the second letter, 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter, and we don't have the other two. And when we understand that this is the second letter, the format of 1 Corinthians makes more sense. Because what Paul does is he addresses a bunch of issues that have been brought up in their correspondence back and forth. And he does so in a fashion that feels like mini essays. It doesn't feel like a letter as much as it feels like, here's a short little essay on sexual immorality. Here's a short little essay on abusing communion. And so that's what he does is he writes these short little essays because that's what they've been bringing up to him. And what there is, is there's a power dynamic at play here. And Paul addresses a bunch of these issues in his letter. Here's just a few things that we're going to cover. I'm just going to do this as like a, a shotgun blast, right? In church unity, what's happening is that some people say that they belong to Paul or some to Apollos, and it's causing divisions in the church. In, in marriage, some are being shamed for being married and some are shamed for being single. In communion, the rich are eating their, full, their fill and the poor are left hungry. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians Chapter one, we're going to be covering like verses one to 11 today. I'm just going to kind of go over some of these verses as we go. Uh, to start, let's just read the first two verses. First Corinthians one, 
chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Let's take a look at this. Because what's happening here is there is a diverse group of people navigating being the body of Christ. And Paul tells the church and us today that we are to be together with all the believers. He's talking about unity. How is unity achieved? Unity is achieved in a healthy way, not by strong arming, but through sacrifice. Andy Crouch, he teaches about strength and weakness in his book of the same name, Strong and Weak, that I think will aid us well in understanding community. And often we think about strength and weakness as being opposites, like on one axis you have strength, or you have how strong or strong somebody is, and on one side of the axis is strength, and on the other side is weakness. They're opposites, they don't go together. But when we think about Jesus, though, this is Andy Crouch, he talks about that. Jesus embodies both strength and weakness. He is strong in that he has authority. He has authority over all things. And yet he is weak in that he is sacrificed on the cross. And so you can be strong and weak at the same time. And we can look at strong and weak not as being opposites on the same axis, but as two different axes measured together. You can measure how strong something is and at the same time, how weak it is. Here, let me pull this up for you in those of you who have a video. You can see that this is a strong and weak kind of two by two chart. Um, so if you can imagine this grid is going up and down, the y-axis is strength. We call this authority. Strength or authority, it's our ability to control and take meaningful action. And then on the x-axis is weakness. And we label this one vulnerability. Weakness or vulnerability is the ability to be wounded. And so a healthy life, a flourishing life, is one in which we have the authority to do the things that we ought to do while also embracing a healthy amount of risk. See, a flourishing life is not one that is risk-free. That's boring. That's not flourishing. That's boring. A flourishing life is one where risk is managed and wounds are overcome with the appropriate levels of authority. And flourishing can never be defined within just an individual believer. We are made for community. Flourishing describes a community where authority is shared in helpful ways and where people are vulnerable with one another. This is not for you to internalize in your own self, but to ask, how am I living in community in these ways? Excuse me. If we are not risking something of real value, we are not really vulnerable. Because we need real risk entangled with real authority to find true flourishing. Think about a child for a second. Children are born with maximum vulnerability. Children are born with maximum vulnerability and minimum authority. So they have, they're very vulnerable, but they have no authority, no, uh, no real way to make a meaningful impact in their lives. In a healthy system, they grow in authority and they maintain a healthy level of authority and vulnerability. Absent parents or, you know, even calling children leaders makes the same mistake. 
It asks them to have a level of authority that they're not capable of maintaining. When parents are absent from their kids' lives or when parents ask their kids to do more than what their age can handle, they expose their low levels of authority and make them more vulnerable than is necessary. This is why protecting our children has to be a fundamental part of any children's program. As parents, for our children, we embody both strength and weakness. We use our authority to reduce our kids' vulnerability to a healthy level. We don't let anything happen to our kids because we use our authority to protect them. And on the other hand, we also embrace vulnerabilities that our children know nothing about. Our children know nothing about our financial worries or our struggles with our own past or our worries for their futures. So not only do we like healthily conceal our own wounds, but we become vulnerable, vulnerable and take on their wounds in a healthy way as well so that they can grow into their own authority. We bear their burdens. When they're having issues, we take those on and we hear them out. We lower ourselves to their levels so that we can enter into their lives and bear their burdens. I don't have children of my own. But let me tell you how I know this is true because scripture often refers to believers as children and historically another word for pastor is father. As a pastor, it's my job to enter into and to bear your vulnerabilities so that you can grow in authority. I don't have another job to worry about. This is my job. My job is to be concerned for you and to look out for your best interests. This is the way it must be. Leaders, parents, they bear vulnerabilities that the community, the children do not have the authority to address. See, the most important thing that I can do as a pastor is to help our community meet our deepest vulnerable vulnerabilities with the appropriate authority. That is to meet our deepest areas of wounding with the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at how Paul does this. Because Paul does this in a beautiful way. I love the story of Sosthenes. He's mentioned here. Paul begins 1 Corinthians by saying, Paul, a disciple of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God, or something like that, and our brother Sosthenes. If you turn to Acts 18, I'll summarize it for us real fast, but you can follow along if you want. Paul, when he came to Corinth, to the city of Corinth in 50 AD, he spent his time teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then in his, and during the week, he would try to convince the Jews and Greeks of the truth of the gospel. Well, Crispus, this dude, he was the leader of the synagogue and he became a believer. And that caused the Jews to attack Paul and to take him a court to court. And these Jews were led by the leader of the synagogue, a man named Sosthenes. And here's what happens. The court didn't go well. Court didn't go well for the Jewish people. Here's what scripture says. Acts 18, verse 16 to 18 says, And Gallio, the proconsul, the judge, dismissed them from the trial or from the court. And then the Jews seized Sosthenes, the official of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio paid no attention to any of these things. After staying there for a considerable time, Paul said farewell to the believers and sailed for Syria. So the crowds, when they don't get what they want, then when they don't, when Paul is not taken and beaten, they turn their attention from Paul to Sosthenes. And scripture doesn't say this, but I imagine Paul 
seeing Sosthenes beaten to a pulp. And he could have said, well, he wanted to beat me and now he's been beaten. He got what's coming to him. I don't think Paul did that. I think Paul stayed a considerable time in Corinth to tend and care for Sosthenes. And Paul uses his authority as a disciple of Jesus Christ not to limit his vulnerability. He could have left Sosthenes bleeding on the sidewalk. That would have been the safe thing to do. Instead, Paul entered into a vulnerable place to mend and care for him. And then a few years later, Sosthenes is still traveling with Paul. They could have been so close. And Sosthenes is such a vital part of the ministry that the letter of 1 Corinthians is written by Paul and our brother Sosthenes. How do you use your authority? When we use our authority to limit our vulnerability, it always comes at the expense of making others more vulnerable. When we use, think about it like this, when we use alcohol to cover up our insecurities and make ourselves less vulnerable, we make our kids more vulnerable. What we can do is we can use our faith to cover up our fear of failure, right? We might say, well, I can't teach a Bible study. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a whatever. And what we do is we use our authority to say no as part of a healthy community, but we avoid risk and wounding, and we ultimately make the bigger church more vulnerable. If you think that the church is a place for you to come and feel comfortable, a place where you will not be wounded, you've missed the point. You are exploiting your authority at the expense of others' suffering. You're denying others the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. Let's read on. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the call of the church is to be saints. The Greek word there literally means holy people, together with all the other Christians who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, both their Lord and ours. So Paul here is laying the foundation for the rest of the book. The beginning of church unity is the acknowledgement that we all follow the same God. We all follow the same God. And Paul is saying here that they have everything they need. You have everything you need to live in this unity. You know, just before I started as a pastor here, we, we brought these new pews in from a church down in Oskaloosa. We brought in seats for 199 people. At the time, we were averaging in the teens or so. And then we were averaging 37 people. And I did the math. And so... Um, Last, you know, like last week at Easter, Easter is always the biggest Sunday, right? We had like 60 some people in here or so. And so that means that we had room for 139 more people. What that tells me is that there are 139 people in Mason City who are missing from the church. The reality is that we have everything that we need to reach them. Not because our kids program is perfect. It's not. It's not because we have everything we need to reach them. Not because our sermons are brilliant. They're not we have everything we need to reach them. We have everything we need to reach our 139 because God, because God has enriched us with the right speech, knowledge, testimony of Christ, and is growing every spiritual gift. He is strengthening us to the very end. 
that's uh first corinthians 1 verses like 3 to 8 so what then would hinder us from reaching our goal if we have everything that we need if god has already given it to us and we have everything that we need what will hinder us from reaching our goal we will when we embrace our own authority and we fail to rely on the authority of Jesus Christ, we hinder ourselves. See, Jesus being God has more authority than anybody else. And yet to save us, he gave up his authority. See, this is the paradox of flourishing. In order to flourish as a community, we have to give up our authority and enter into the dark places that Jesus entered, pain, loss, and death. Just as using our authority to limit our vulnerability comes at the price of wounding others, when we enter into the places of giving up our authority willingly and embrace the wounds, we pay the price for others to flourish. See, Jesus gave up his authority to be nailed to the cross in the ultimate wounding. Our mission in Mason City is to help, us, is to help individuals and whole communities to flourish in a place of healthy vulnerability and authority. But to do so, to set free those who have suffered the most from idolatry, addiction, injustice, and tyranny requires us to follow Jesus to the places we don't want to go. The difficult places of pain and loss, of fear of failure, of fear of I don't know how to do that. And the most likely thing to stop us is ourselves. We don't want to give up our places of power so that others can flourish. When we've been the beneficiary of a system for so long, we start to think that we actually deserve it. We actually deserve to be advantaged. But we must not forget that we, we are who we are and we are in this life, not because of anything that we've done, but solely because of Jesus Christ and his grace and his work in our lives. And so we thank God that he has given us everything we need to accomplish his mission. So without him, we would still be people who try to insulate ourselves from the outside world and limit our vulnerability. Paul continues on, verses 10 and 11. Be in agreement. Be in agreement, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are many quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. And now we come to why Paul is writing this letter. Paul says to be in agreement. And the people of Corinth, they can't agree on anything. Paul says to live on mission together. They don't even know what the mission is. There is division and contentions inside of the church. It is unhealthy and it needs to be addressed. And Paul hears about this all the way from Ephesus. And he writes that he wants the people to be in agreement, to have no divisions, to be united in the same mind and purpose. And Paul is writing this as a challenge and critique. And in going through this book of the Bible, we too should feel challenged and criticized. And through this, though, we can grow. If I were to take a piece of paper and hold it up like this and blow over the top of it, blow over the top of it, what would happen? Will the paper raise or lower? If I blow like this and I blow on it, is it gonna lower or raise? Let me pull this up. You recognize this face? He might be disappointed in you. This is Bernoulli. He did incredible work on 
mathematical work on pressure, volume, and velocity. Have you ever stuck your thumb over a garden hose? What happens when you do that? When you stick your thumb over a garden hose, the vol, the vo yeah, the volume, the space for the water to escape, the volume decreases, and so that means that pressure increases and velocity goes up. And so the math behind like sticking your thumb over a garden hose was discovered by this guy Bernoulli in uh, the 1700s. Here, this is his uh, equation. If you don't recognize it, perhaps that's why he is so disappointed in you. This is his equation for, uh, for pressure and volume and gravity and height and whatever, but it's ultimately equals out and that's why there's the equal sign in the middle. Um, but if you think about this, right? There's a decrease of volume and it increases pressure and velocity. When I whistle, what, what's happening is I'm, I'm increasing the pressure behind my lips and whatever, and to make the higher pitch sound, it's an increase of pressure. A lower pitch sound is a decrease in pressure and all of that. So when I blow on this paper, what's happening is there's gonna be an increase there's an increase of velocity going over the top of the paper. That'll increase the velocity. Right now, there is a static amount of pressure on the, both the top and the bottom of the paper. And that's, that's caused by our atmosphere. There's gravity pulling this down. That's why it lowers there. When I blow over the top of it though, when I blow over the top of the paper, it's going to increase the velocity, which will decrease the pressure on top. And with a decreased pressure on top, will the, will the paper rise or fall? Check this out. You can even try this if you want. I think it's a neat application, right? Because here's what I'm gonna say. If you want a healthy church, if you want a church that stands, you need to increase velocity in the same volume. In an unhealthy church, if you ask 30 people what is the mission, you'll get 30 different answers. In a healthy church, if you ask 30 people what's the mission here, they will give you almost the same answer. And what happens is it wasn't until the air is going in the same direction. It wasn't until the air is going in the same direction over the paper that the paper can stand. How do we expect a church to stand if the people are not going in the same direction? And if I were to ask everybody here this morning, what is the mission of Riverside Friends Church? I think that we would have probably two predominant answers. That is because we have an older congregation that has been attending for decades. And we have a primarily younger congregation that has only recently started attending in the last few years. And the question posed will be, how will this older congregation respond to the younger? Will they give up their authority and enter into weakness? Will they move in the same direction, creating negative pressure so that younger will find their own authority and their own ability to stand in a flourishing community? See, the established, the established congregation has left their fingerprints on this church. Now, will they embrace vulnerability and allow these new people the authority to leave their fingerprints as well? And there has been some evidence of this. There have been changes to the way we worship. Those have come at a, 
at a cost. These changes have been to accommodate the new people. And frankly, I will continue to push for more and more changes. If I ever stop pushing for more changes, I will have failed you as a leader. See, growth is a form of change, and I want you all to grow. So I want you all to change, and I want our church to grow. I want our church to change. If I ever stop growing, then I've failed in my own personal life. See, a key part of leadership is normalizing change. Good leaders normalize change. Any church that is not changing is dying. An unchanging church will remain the same right up until the door closes and the church is turned into an apartment building or an insurance office or something. So the church must always exist with the purpose of finding and bringing in new people. That must be, they must be the priority. The church does not exist for the established congregation. It exists for the glory of God. And God is glorified when his kingdom is known on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell will not stand against his kingdom. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell won't stand. And a church that exists for the established congregation has already decided that their part of the kingdom is safe and secure. They don't got to do anything. God, though, calls us to storm the gates of hell. So the church must be on mission to see God's kingdom expand into new territory. The mission of God is to breathe the air of God through his people as we all move in the same direction. Paul ends verse 2 by saying, both their Lord and ours. This church does not belong to the older congregation, nor does it belong to the newer. All of us belong to Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth can't agree on anything. They keep arguing and they miss the point. Here at Riverside Friends Church, we have two congregations. The words of Paul are as much for them as they are for us. How will we be unified in mind and purpose? We have the opportunity to use our authority to limit our vulnerability, to insulate ourselves. We can ensure that the church won't change. We will be safe and comfortable, but we will miss the kingdom of God. We have the opportunity to enter into vulnerability. To empower others' authority. We will be wounded and uncomfortable on their behalf, and honestly, they won't even appreciate the amounts that we gave up for them. But in doing so, we will storm the gates of hell. We will grow God's kingdom, and we will flourish as a community. I know what I want to do. What kind of church do you want? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to answer that question? What kind of church do we want? How are you growing us to be more and more like you? Would you help us to answer that? As we enter into 1 Corinthians, would we see our own reflection here in this book? And would you teach us to live in the unity that you desire for us? We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.